Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. It is time for another edition of Female First, which means we are once again joined by our good friend and co-worker, Eves. Hello, Eves. Hello, we hello. We called her the executive producer, now our boss, because I don't think we've mentioned she is <laughs> uh, nobody the needs woman. To know that. Nobody needs to know that. I don't love that. The I'm like, woman yes, she's going to be, she's uh, for real, for real, a part of the team. She's the boss of the team. I love it. Yeah, so these uh, female first have taken a different turn. Oh, look at that. Look at that. I'm just I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> we are, yes, we are thrilled to have you officially on the team uh, and also thrilled to have you on the show, as always. I'm excited to be here, as always, as well. What's up, Eves? Um, I'm drinking, I'm currently drinking green tea with matcha in it. Nice. And... That's the end. Um, when I hear people talk about drinking tea, like tea with the matcha, they're ready for the day. Like they're really I, trying to prep it. You know, I mean, I've been up for a minute now. Um, it's the morning, but it's cool. You know. <laughs> I um, love when people say that because it feels like <laughs> it's not cool. Perhaps. <laughs> Do I sound but, like I'm on fire? I mean, I was trying no. to be as I was trying to hide that. Usually, I'm pretty good at not showing when like everything you know what? is. I would agree with you that, Eve. Eve is making a gesture of like explosion, <laughs> like the uh, fire listeners. meme, of sitting in the yes. fire going, "Everything's fine, just fine." To be yeah, fair, yeah, when I good. saw you take a sip, I had the moment of like, "She's doing the cover the frog tea moment." <laughs> I'm getting that? Tea. No, I, I really just do like like drinking tea. So it's nice to have something something warm in yes. my body while we're while we're talking. Yes, and uh, today you have once again bought someone who has a fascinating story. Love it. Absolutely fascinating. Can you tell us what woman we will be discussing today? Yeah, so we'll be talking about Nora Holt. And yes, her life is super fascinating. I feel like she's got one of those lives that feels larger than life, like so glamorous. So I think one thing I was reading described her as a quote-unquote, femme fatale, you know, during a big part of her life. But she was a composer, a music critic, and a singer. And she was possibly the first Black American to get a master's in music. And that's the first that we're going to be talking about today. So her history is really intertwined with the Harlem Renaissance and the explosion in the arts and music at the time. And she kind of moved in those circles, which if you're not familiar with the Harlem Renaissance, um, it was a time when Black arts were really thriving. Um, in this case, centered on Harlem and New York, but there was also a lot of other Black art scenes that were exploding in the United States at the time. Um, and this was this was like roughly at the end of World War One. So... Nora Holt herself was born before that, but when she was moving in those circles, you know, she was steeped in it. She was steeped in her music. She was steeped in other writers' work. She was steeped in her own writing as well because she was also, like I said, a music critic. And yeah, it was, it did seem glamorous. She traveled all across the world, as we'll talk about <laughs> a little later. <laughs> but yeah, Nora Holt, she's She's somebody who is definitely really worthy of us remembering. I feel like, you know, when I've been reading about people who were in the Harlem Renaissance and who people like, you know, Langston Hughes and County Cullen and some of the people that we'll talk about who are also involved in the Harlem Renaissance and also had some proximity to Nora Holt, 
other women musicians' names are brought up, but I don't really see, you know, Nora Holt in a lot of those collections, like gatherings of of names of women musicians who really did a lot at the time, which, you know, has a lot to do with the fact that a lot of her work isn't. We don't we don't know a lot of her work. Um, we just know a lot about what other people said about her and what she said about herself. But yeah, so very I'm excited to get into into her story today. Yeah, just reviewing some of her story, I feel like she would be what I imagined the 20s to be, the roaring 20s <laughs> and the collective and the beauty and the and the uh, yeah. glamour of it all. Like I'm like, oh yeah, this is she, her life is what I pictured. And this was that fascination with art, music, uh, and the culture in itself. I'm like, oh, this is exciting. Why, why am I not watching more of this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Like reading about her story, she just seemed so like, like a person I feel like I would really aspire to be and want to be, but like never be able to be the person that she was. Yeah, like right. the way that she seemed like she just so seamlessly moved in and out of circles and was at private parties and also obviously was like very talented. Um, yeah, so <laughs> definitely somebody who seems so glamorous and such a like a model of what that era seemed like it would have been. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it was another one where I was um, reading through some of the articles about her, and I was like, this is a crime I've never heard of her before. <laughs> like, yeah. This is ridiculous. <laughs> this is so good. I'm so like, I want to know more. <laughs> Just <laughs> intrigued by her whole story. So yeah. why don't we get into it? Okay. Um, yeah, so she was born Lena Douglas in Kansas City in Kansas, so there is some discrepancy over the date that she was born, but most people go with 1885. It's sometimes listed as 1890. Her parents were Gracie Douglas and Calvin Douglas. He was a minister in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And, you know, she been she began taking piano lessons pretty early on. She also played the organ. Um, and pretty early on in her life, as we, we start to get to her marriages, which people like often like to focus on in the press that surrounded her. So she married at age 15 to a guy named Sky James, who was a musician. Um, not long after that, she divorced him and she married politician Philip Scroggins. Um, and then after that, she divorced him and she married a barber named Bruce Jones. It was around this time she graduated from Western University, which was a school in Quindaro, Kansas. So that school was really known for its excellent music department. She went on to get her bachelor's degree in music in 1917. And then she enrolled at Chicago Music College. And that is where she gets her first. So that's where she got her master's in music. Um, so that school had a faculty with people like Louis Victor Starr. When she was in Chicago, she got some of the money to pay for her tuition by singing at dinner parties, um, becoming familiar with wealthy white locals. So she was already starting to move in those circles. Um, she also performed at clubs in the red light district. So that included singing and playing piano at this brothel in Chicago that was operated by the Everly sisters. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so she was already <laughs> like this, you know, of course, like her music was very important to her. And, and it was also something that uh, a lot of people were drawn to and she was recognized for. But her personal life was also something that people were interested in. And in looking back at her story is something that, you know, is 
very shiny to look at um, because of this kind of socialite life that she had. So yeah, like I said, she got her master's degree from the Chicago Musical College. And her thesis for uh, her master's degree was a piece for a symphony orchestra that was called Rhapsody on Negro Themes. Delving back into her, her marriage life, it was in 1917 that she married George Holt, a hotel owner. And that's where the last name Holt came in and also went around the time that she took the first name Nora. So you'll see her and you know the thing that they do um, in terms of last names. Like they're like, Nora, Lena, Lena, Nora, Douglas, Ray, Holt, you know, for all the guys yeah. that she married. Right. Right. <laughs> Being real extra with the last names. It's like, okay, her name is, you know, we're, we're going to refer to her as Nora Holt. But, you know, if you look yeah. back, back at some of the press around her, they'll do that kind of thing just to attach all of the guys that she married um, to her name <laughs> as if she needed to wow. carry them around with her her whole life. Right. Um, but yeah, it was it was um, around that time she took the name Nora. Um, and from 1917 to 1921, she was a music critic and she wrote a column for the Chicago Defender, which was a black daily in the city. And in her music criticism, she really did focus a lot on being able to uplift other black musicians and black artists and really encourage other people to patronize them and to support their work and to encourage them and to you know, listen to listen to their music and appreciate their art. And, you know, she was, she worked on the Defender staff. Um, she would also write about all of the things that Black musicians around the U.S. were doing, like Hazel Harrison and like uh, Clarence Cameron White, who was a really big musician. And she also edited and published a journal called Music and Poetry, which its subtitle was A Monthly Magazine of High Standard for Musicians and Music Lovers. And so in every issue, she would urge subscribers to take this pledge. It was, I will use something of Negro origin on every program. And so in all the magazine issues, she would print a composition by a Black composer. So that was a way in which she continued to spotlight and introduce other people to the work of Black musicians. We have some more of our conversation, but first we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Thank you, sponsor. So another way that she would support other Black musicians who were working at the time was by involving herself in like organizations that had to do with music. And one of them was one she co-founded, which was the National Association of Negro Musicians, which I'll just call the association R-N-A-N-M. Um, so she wasn't the first one to bring up putting together that kind of association. But in 1918, she was milling the idea around in her head, and she issued a call for an association in the Chicago Defender. So she began to work with other Chicago musicians um, to make plans to create the association. And in May of 1919 in D.C., there was a preliminary conference of Black musicians that was led by Nora herself and also by musician Henry Grant. And so the association's first national convention was held in Chicago just a couple of months later, at the end of July to the beginning of August, which was happened to be the same time that riots were happening in Chicago because this was the Red Summer, 
which was a period of several months throughout the year of 1919 when riots and terrorism and racial violence was happening all around the U.S. So this was literally all around the U.S. And it's notable for the amount of white supremacy violence that was happening. Of course, the whole era, this was also prominent in the time, but this was a specific time when things were very charged and riots were happening, big ones, um, in different locations across the U.S. And this was the case in Chicago that same weekend of the conference. That affected the schedules and the venues that were a part of the convention. So there was a concert there, and, you know, Holt did talk about the events of the day, and she noted that one of the standout performances was that by Contralto Marian Anderson, who went on to have a great career. Um, and Nora was also vice president of the association for a few years. So in 1921, her husband, George Holt, died. Um, and at that point, she became wealthier. She didn't really need to perform for money anymore. Um, and she closed the magazine, Music and Poetry. She left her post at NANM. And she stopped writing her column for the Chicago Defender. So she did create her own classical compositions, and she created a lot of them. So by the mid-1920s, she had created around, somewhere around 200 compositions. And she married her fifth husband, who was Joseph Ray. Um, and he was an assistant to Charles Schwab. Their marriage was not amicable, and it didn't last that long. Um, they lived in Pennsylvania where, when they were together for a bit. And... Yeah, new, so newspapers printed stories about her love life and about her relationships and really focused on all the drama and the conflict that they perceived to be happening in her life and her marriage to him. Um, so even though she was successful and people were paying attention to her music, you know, a lot of which was at private parties, but, you know, she was, a lot of what the press did focus on was like her, her love life and the things that were happening there. Um, she was kind of portrayed as Nora the socialite and Nora the rich woman who attended a lot of parties rather than Nora the musician and Nora the composer. So they wrote about her wedding with this Joseph Ray guy saying that she wore six carat diamond earrings in each ear and gossiping that her veil concealed a black eye that she had gotten from a lover. Um, so... Play, playing things up as they want to do. The Chicago Defender covered Ray suits against Nora and the counter suits that she had. And, and for instance, she was accused of having an affair with a guy named Leroy Wilkins. And he, Ray also sued her over thousands of dollars of real estate and jewels that he put in her name. And there was a point where he claimed that their marriage was invalid because of an improper divorced from one of her previous husbands. Um, but she said Ray was really jealous. So all of this was, this back and forth was covered in the press. And, you know, people, you know, soaked that up. So what can you say? Yeah. I mean, it's good reading, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like this still happens, though, where, like, I remember recently there was that, recently as in, like, three or four years ago, there was that article about Taylor Swift, and they referred to her as, like, somebody's girlfriend and she was like hold on <laughs> I'm like I'm bigger than this dude don't refer to me by him yeah and just yeah. like 
being remembered more for your, especially women, I feel like, uh, whatever's your your personal life and who are you dating and, and mm-hmm. all of that stuff rather than what you achieve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yes. Um, don't get me started on that because, like, <laughs> the the climate of, like, gossip is just so strange to me, celebrity gossip and the, and the amount of intensity that people have when they're following people's lives that they know nothing about. Um, It's very strange to me, but it does remind me of one thing that, you know, when we're like all these women that we're covering on Female First, and I know all the ones that you come across. I don't know if we talked about this before. We might have, but it is something that consistently bothers me is that when a lot of times in people's stories and in their biographies, they don't mention, they they lead with the occupation of the man and don't Mm -hmm. say anything about the, the woman and like how she lived her life, even if it's not an occupation, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And if it is, like if it is, you know, if it's domestic work or if it's, you know, whatever the thing might be, but that the woman, like how she lived her life, like, right. I don't know, like maybe she spent time, she really enjoyed being a part of the church. Like, you know, the, they don't, they, there's always a, a, a forefronting of like what the guy did. This was, that was the parent of this person and, and, and the mother just kind of like, She's the mother, which is fine. Like that's perfectly great, but it's just always situated that way, and it, it's it's irritating. No, yeah, I think that's the same because I I often think even for women who who didn't marry or who uh, didn't have a family or a big family or whatever, whatnot, that's one of the things they actually mentioned. Not necessarily yeah. that you know she had this career and this is why, but oh, she was you know she didn't marry because, and then they speculate as to why, whether it's <laughs> she thought too much about her job or she wasn't you know. In, in right. all these things, and it's always they have to find a reason for it. I don't feel like it happens as much with that. It's obviously if he's famous and if he's done something significant, that's why he's not married. Duh! Like yeah. <laughs> they kind of leave it alone. That's where they have to have an actual explanation for why their relationship is what it is. Whether it's in their opinion, they married too many people, or they didn't marry enough people, mm-hmm. or they weren't happy enough, or they were too, you know, any of these things right. is very yeah. speculatory, especially for women. And there has to be a reason for that <laughs> relationship or non relationship. Yeah. 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 People feel very, very, uh, <laughs> open. Open isn't the right word. They feel like they're allowed to judge women. Uh, for, for for most things, but particularly for like relationship stuff and like right. weighing in on what's going on there. Whereas whatever the man's <laughs> doing is here? good. <laughs> He's fine. <laughs> yeah, definitely a double standard. Mm-hmm. So they eventually divorced her and Ray did. Um, but there is a, like a lot of what's known about her Nora's life in the 1920s and in the 1930s is based on what her friend Carl von Vechten um, wrote about her in the letters that the two of them exchanged. And they met in Harlem in the early 1920s, and they were friends until he died. Um, so von Vechten was a white cultural critic and a novelist, and one of his well-known novels is Heaven. And Nora was said to be a model for hit one of the characters in that story, Alaska Sartoris. Um, and Von Vechten himself was a pretty controversial figure in both black and white circles, you know, for <laughs> for different reasons, you know, because of the types of work that he wrote, but, you know, was also respected in black circles as well because of the people who he did run with and um, the stories that he wrote and 
for the same reason, the fact that he was such a supporter of Black art and so involved in that way. A lot of white folks did not like him. Um, But yeah, point is, like, he was a controversial figure and Nora was good friends with him. And Holt began traveling around Europe and she stayed overseas for a good minute and for long periods in the 1920s. She learned French, she performed in Paris, she performed in Shanghai, um, and there are plenty of articles about her appearances in Europe. So also very played up, like um, mentioned her being a blonde. Um, They mentioned that the Prince of Wales was at one of her performances in London and congratulated her on the show afterward, and she said this as well. And there was a writer in the London Daily Express that described her as a blonde Creole, saying that she, quote, has a presence and a manner similar in many ways to those of Sophie Tucker. And Sophie Tucker was a Russian-born American singer and entertainer, which you can look up pictures of her and also pictures of Nora and see what you, <laughs> what you think about the two of them looking like each other. So the writer said about her singing, quote, she can produce sounds not comparable to orthodox singing, ranging from deepest low voice to shrilling high, often unaccompanied by words. There are no existing records, recordings of Nora singing. So we don't really know what she sounded like, but we just have to kind of surmise based off of people's descriptions of her. There were, you know, there's descriptions in the articles that people wrote, and then there's a little bit that we can surmise from the letters between her and Von Vechten um, about the her appearances and how she felt about her performances and how other people did. There was one when she wrote about her French audiences, and this is what she said. She said, imagine them liking me and they don't know a word I am singing or what it's all about. The real truth is I'm selling my hair and personality. <laughs> So she was described as having blonde hair. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that close was really funny to me. I like how upfront she is about like, hey, y'all, I'm doing a job. It's a gig. Um, and, and it's like, you know, I know what I have and I know my strengths and I'm going to play to them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that When I was reading the articles about her, it did kind of make me laugh that almost everyone was like, she had platinum blonde hair. And I was like... <laughs> right. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. They were fascinating. I mean, the proximity to whiteness, you know? You know, the the whole Creole thing and her looking like Sophie Tucker is like, wow. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She has the essence of blackness, but also the essence of whiteness, which makes (laughs) her so much more intriguing, you know? Which, you know, it is what it is. (laughs) But yeah, they, they did tend to like talk about her hair being red or being blonde and how that was just so fascinating. Yeah, I read in one article that she had a hair salon? Is that correct? And that uh, someone noted that, oh no, now there's going to be so many, (laughs) not oh no, but oh, now we're going to see so many women with blonde hair because that's her thing. And that's what she's trying to make everyone do or something that that's her influence in itself. I thought it was kind of funny that they needed to talk about that as well. Yeah. Well, not for nothing, blonde hair on Black people is still a topic of conversation this many years later. Right. (laughs) Some things don't change or don't change quickly (laughs) enough. Um, (laughs) Yes, she did have a salon later in life, though. Um, Yeah, so before she left for Europe in 1926, she did store all of her manuscripts. And when she got back from her travels in Europe and Asia, she found out that they had been stolen. The works that are left are Negro Dance, which was a work 
or which is a work for solo piano, and also The Sandman. So those are the only two extant works that she has. So she did publish those. So it's fortunate that she published those and that we have that to be able to refer to. But that's what, you know, remains of her compositions. That's, I mean, 200. Right. Things yeah. like I, my computer crashed recently, and I, I've lost like a silly fan fiction I wrote, and I was devastated. <laughs> That's devastating. Like, that is it was. devastating. Thank you, Eves, but it's not two hundred <laughs> pieces that are just gone. Right? Like, yeah. Oof, oof. That would make me have a panic attack for real. Yeah. 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 I, I, I do. I do wonder. You know how she? What happened to them? What happened? I'm right. <laughs> the world may never know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the question. Yeah. Is who actually stole them and why and where is it? And did people just publish her works with that with taking credit? Or I would have thought she would have called them out pretty quickly. Those are her songs, but and what was the motive behind the theft? Right. Yeah. These are no joke the histories of mysteries of history that keep me up at night. <laughs> I want to know. <laughs> it's another job for you, Annie. Like maybe that can oh. be History detective. Add it to the resume. <laughs> I would be so bad at it. <laughs> that should be a show in itself. Me doing a terrible job trying to solve <laughs> mysteries of history. Hey, quarantine projects. You gotta have them. <laughs> That's what I say. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. So she did spend a lot of time traveling around the world and traveling in Europe and Asia, but... World War II was approaching. She was in Asia. And by the end of the 30s, as it, World War II was gearing up, she was back in the U.S. And she was in Har- She had been in Harlem for a while, but she moved to California. And she began teaching music in public high schools in the late 1930s. And like you said, Samantha, she owned a salon around this time when she went to California. Um, she went, but she did go back to New York in the early 1940s and was still doing music criticism basically up until the time that she she died. Um, so she was a music editor and critic at the Amsterdam News, which was a black newspaper. She served as the critic there until 1956. The Amsterdam News was a black newspaper that was first published in 1909. So she continued, and it it also like included the over the years, you know, um, that it was in existence, included a lot of notable writers in its pages. Um, Yeah, so she continued to encourage people to support Black artists through her own writing. And she became the first Black American member of the Music Critics Circle of New York. Um, And she also organized a radio concert series um, that ran on WNYC in 1945. So she, you know, continued to work in radio, continued to do her music criticism. From 1953 to 64, she began to host and produce a concert series on WLIB in New York and was writing as well in 1956 for the New York Courier. But as, you know, the great traveler that she was by 1964, she was back in California and continued to spend her time supporting music and supporting Black artists. We have a little bit more for you listeners, but first we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. 
She died in 1974 at a nursing home in Los Angeles and had lived a very full life (laughs) up until that point. Um, She, as a person who traveled throughout Europe and did a lot of private parties there, did a lot of private parties here in the U.S. as well, spent time in China and Shanghai and Japan. And China was a big place for Black jazz musicians, um, maybe even in the 1930s, a little bit bigger than Paris was for Black jazz musicians. So um, definitely tapped into those circles and into the, the... the heat that that had at at that point in time. So yeah, unfortunately, you know, you can go online and watch a performance of Negro Dance that's, you know, not by Nora herself, but you can find that online if you want to hear what her music sounded like. Just a a little sneak peek of the the massive (laughs) wealth of music that she did compose in her time. But yeah, no recordings, so we can't really hear her voice, which would be nice. But um, yeah, she lived a full life, and I think her story speaks for itself, even though I think it could have more shine, as always, as any of these people that we talk about could. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I would highly recommend any listeners to look look up her story because it's full of um, amazing quotes. Mm -hmm. And I I just was like, who was this person? This is... I wonder if anybody's ever written in a letter about me, like, her trail is strewed with bones. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. There there was an element of, like, fear. <laughs> I don't know, like, fear as in, like, fear and awe, that yeah. kind of fear yeah. that I think surrounded her yeah. and, like, her presence and her, the, the effect that she had on guys, I think, as well. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. I did love also, like, when we're talking about her uh, as a co-founder of the NA&M, and when she was talking about the fact that she actually wrote a chronicle history of NAM in 1921, I guess that's when she was leaving the organization, mm-hmm. that she made sure that her role in that organization was recorded and she did it yeah. her day himself. She's like, nah, you're not going to erase me. And I feel like, yeah, that's the kind of courage we really, really needed from a lot of people because that's how we miss out in history is no one's willing to record it. And she's like, no, you're not going to forget the contributions that I made and though it may have been acknowledged by others, the fact of the matter is she took it into her own, own hands so that she would not be erased or dismissed. And I was like, yes, yes. And the fact that she had to do that on its own is like really telling of what we want to acknowledge as a part of history and who made that history. Yeah, well, it does kind of seem like the ironic part of her story that she spent so much time concerned about documenting other people's work, yeah. like putting it, publishing it in her in her magazines and talking about it and telling other people about it and telling other people to go see and listen to it. And then Mm -hmm. we don't have hers to go see and listen to. Like, it's not documented. Um, Which is, you know, how the world works, I guess. Uh, Give some and you take some. But, yeah, I mean, it's great that we do know something about her story and that we we know that the work that she did to be able to uplift other people (laughs) and also continue to do her own work that was also very well, well recognized and acknowledged for, for its strength. Yeah. And I, I, I do love to, um, I just love hearing stories of people who are so passionate about something and she was, she seems like she was so passionate about music and like that was just her calling and she knew it. And then 
as part of that passion, she also was uplifting Mm -hmm. and was just focusing on other people and like genuinely really just loved music and wanted other people to love it and have chances and opportunities in it too. Um, I just, I love stuff like that. Yeah. And then, and the joy and fun that she seemed to be having at the same time. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, this is serious stuff. You know, I care about, I care about Black culture and uplifting Blackness. And, you know, that is the work, the purpose and the mission of the work that I do. But like at the same time, I'm just having a good time. (laughs) I'm just having a good time, you know? Yeah. Sometimes I'm serious. Sometimes I'm partying. Um, And I do like that a lot about her life. Like I feel like despite the the sensationalism of the way that people talk about her social life, it is, it does feel nice to be able to see that convergence of paying attention to movement and, and what was happening in activism at the time. And also like the the glamour and the glitz and the and the fun that was had at the same time. Yeah. She lived her life to the full and she did not yeah. hesitate to love. And I appreciate that. <laughs> like, that's a thing, you know, instead of being scarred by it or being in part of being in mourning, she's like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep yeah. loving people. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> like hard. That that's hard to do. That yeah. is hard to do. When you get banged up in a relationship, to pick yourself back up and to continue forward and to really believe, because to be married, to really think this is it, this is it. I'm like, wow, that's a lot of hope. <laughs> that yeah. I don't have. Uh, <laughs> I was telling on me, I guess. I like that yeah. though. That's a that's a that's a pull quote. Put somebody can put that on their, their wall next to "Live, Laugh, Love." Yes. <laughs> don't, yes. Hesitate, don't hesitate like to it. love. <laughs> I like it. Someone did like that it. in a pillow. <laughs> somebody, please make this for Samantha, <laughs> so she can sleep on it every please. night. Please remind myself. I can this, this is like too. the quote at the end of Practical Magic, which we ju- I just watched for the first time. Fall in love as often as you can. It's true. See? Oh. <laughs> um, bring it all together. Yes, yes. She seems like, uh, Nora Holt seems like she was the embodiment of work hard, play hard, and also like she was the life of the party. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, anything else you want to add before we close out? No, that is all. That's all for me. All right. Well, thanks as always for being with us, Eves. Where can the good listeners find you? You can find me online at Eves Jeffco on Twitter. I'm at Not Apologizing on Instagram. You can also listen to some of the shows that I've been on, like Unpopular, which is a show about history and the cool things that people did and how they got persecuted for it and hearing more about their stories. Also on This Day in History class, which is a daily podcast about people in history and about the things that happen in history that can give you a little offering of other historical happenings. And that is all. <laughs> That's it for me. <laughs> and that is all. <laughs> I said good day. <laughs> I said good day. <laughs> if you listeners would like to contact us, you can. Or email us stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can also find us on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You or on Twitter at Momstuff Podcast. Thanks as always to our super producer, Andrew Howard. Thanks. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I've Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 